Hello and welcome to Culture Sex Relationships with me, Justin Hancock. This week is an interview with uh, Alfie Bowne about his excellent book, um, Dream Lovers, uh, The Gamification of Relationships. It's extremely good. I would encourage everyone to immediately just go and buy it. There is a link in the show notes and it's out this week. So let's help books like this just get really popular because this is the kind of book that if you're interested in this show, you would definitely, definitely be interested in this book. So Alfie Bowne is a lecturer in digital media at Royal Holloway University London. He is a founding editor of 1968 Press and his journalism has appeared in Tribune, New Statesman, Paris Review and The Guardian. His other books include The PlayStation Dreamworld and Post Memes, Seizing the Memes of Production. And I'm just going to also read out the overview of this book as well, which I got from the Pluto Books website. We are in the middle of a desire revolution, a fundamental and political transformation of the way we desire as human beings. Perhaps, as always, new technologies with their associated and inherited political biases are organising and mapping the future. What we don't seem to notice is that the primary way in which our lives are being transformed is through the manipulation and control of desire itself. Our very impulses, drives and urges are gamified to suit particular economic and political agendas, changing the way we relate to everything from lovers and friends to food and politicians. Digital technologies are transforming the subject at the deepest level of desire, remapping its libidinal economy in ways never before, never imagined possible. From sex bots to smart condoms, Fitbits to VR simulators and AI to dating algorithms, the love industries are at the heart of the future smart city and the social fabric of everyday life. This book considers these emergent technologies and what they mean for the future of love, desire, work and capitalism. So as you can tell, it's a really dense book packed with really interesting ideas, but it's thoroughly readable. There's loads of theory in it, but it's thoroughly readable. So I'd really encourage you to get it and crucially read it. It's really, really great. And I hope you enjoy this conversation. Uh, this podcast is brought to you by my wonderful patrons at patreon.com forward slash culture sex relationships. If you think shows like this are important, um, I need to be paid to do them. Um, so uh, so if you have any spare cash or you feel like you could subscribe to, to the Patreon, please, if you could consider going to patreon.com forward slash culture sex relationships. It pays me to make the show, prepare the show and edit and produce and publish the show you know, i do everything and also for freelance guests i pay them a fee as well for coming on and there are no adverts um uh, so you know it, you get to have an advert free experience uh, apart from this this ad at the beginning what i'm doing now uh, also there are bits bonus bits and bobs of material so i do readings from the book that i wrote with meg john barker enjoy sex how when and if you want to and there are also bits and bobs of uh, content that i haven't put out um, on the free feed we also have a discord where we can chat about episodes and introduce ourselves to each other and um yeah so i do hope you find this uh, conversation interesting and useful and if you can go to patreon.com forward slash culture sex relationships and also share the show that would be really useful as well and something which wouldn't cost you anything okay so on with the show and um speak to you soon bye okay. um, alfie thank you so much for joining us on culture sex relationships Thanks for having me. It's great to be on. Uh, I'm really excited about this book. I've uh, read it in the past few weeks, a couple of weeks, and I've learned so much from it, as I uh, as I have with, uh, I feel like I say this to all of my guests, but it's always true. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I've learned so many things, and um, it's such a rich and dense book, and anyone who is a fan of this show should definitely just immediately buy it, 
it's so let's do the plugs right up front because <laughs> I think these books I feel like we just don't pay att- attention enough attention to books about sex relationships and desire and things particularly I don't know particularly on the left on the left mm. but I feel like that's always criticism we're always making but uh, so the full title is um dream lovers capitalism dream lovers no dream lovers the gamification of relationships and it's out on Pluto isn't it um, that's right should be out now as you're listening to this podcast um so tell us Alfie um what just what was the context for you writing this book you, you've written about um I guess gaming and mm. uh, and and, uh, and stuff before but what were your motivations yeah. for for moving to dating and love mm. and relationships great question I mean I suppose there's two answers um yeah th- there's a, the silly answer and a serious answer I mean the, the silly answer is that um uh when I saw when I um separated from my partner uh i uh decided to like really uh try some weird stuff out <laughs> um so i <laughs> i spent some time uh looking at um and I, i'm always been a video games person and, a, mm. and, a, and an internet person in general um but i was really intrigued and it you know semi semi jokingly and semi seriously in in things like um ai uh, girlfriends and virtual reality dating simulators and mm. um you know strange kinds of sex robots and uh the places you could go where they were do- using the latest technology to kind of play around with relationships and experiment in sort of um synthetically kind of recreating relationships in robots and so on so i wanted to like try as much of this stuff out uh, even some pretty weird and and scary stuff like VR pornography and smart condoms and things like that, which are all part of the book. And and just kind of think about what this all meant for society in general and what it meant for relationships and so on. Um, But I suppose the other answer, which is a much more serious one, is that, you know, I uh, am, as you you know, like I'm mostly interested in psychoanalysis. So I've done uh, a book on psychoanalysis and video games. and, And then this is a book on psychoanalysis and digital dating I suppose Mm. um so what I'm really interested in is desire and how Mm. technology um, and in particular capitalism and new forms of capitalism tech companies but also wider patterns of capitalism and and changing the changing nature of it are influencing us at the level of desire and of Mm. course they do do that through video games in in for for those who play them but in in a broader sense uh, capitalism and digital technology is often also part of transforming what relationships are what friendships are what uh, working relationships are what what love is what sex is what desire is so I wanted to kind of explore how we're being reprogrammed by new patterns of of platform capitalism or corporate capitalism. Yeah, and the the book is really good at at, at framing desire in that broader kind of way. It isn't. Uh, I mean, I might want to actually just more focus on the on the kind of the dating app end of end of things, but it is you are talking about um, relationships and desire in in this kind of broader sense because it is the. That is the the kind of the world in which we're living in. in uh, we might come to this in a bit, but the kind of um, the city, the online city in which we're living, in which we're uh, immersed in, which is another term I might get you to unpack in a mm. bit. But first of all, let's just get to digital capitalism. I mean, I sorry, platform capitalism. One of the things that really just struck out straight away were the similarities between the um, between the ownership models of what well, who owns uh, the uh, the most popular dating apps and mm. also who owns the most popular uh, porn uh, porn websites, you know they're owned by a very very small number of people. So in uh, in the porn world, most um, 
most studios and most of the platforms that present the scenes from those studios are owned by two companies. Um, one mind keeps the other a Czech company. I can't remember, but it's a similar thing in with dating apps, isn't it? That many of yeah. those popular ones are owned by very few, few numbers of people. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is the thing that's so interesting for me. I mean, basically all dating apps are mostly pretty much all of them are owned by um, this uh, company called IAC, which owns this match group. And they own quite a lot of the newer dating apps from Tinder, Hinge and so on, Bumble, but they also own like historical ones like OkCupid, Plenty of Fish, the kind of where, where date, where online dating kind of started. Mm. Um, and, and so this is, this is interesting just from the perspective of like, well, these apps, they, they, if they're all made by one company, it stands to reason that they share certain characteristics. And it doesn't take long uh, when you start looking as far as you can into the sort of black boxes of their algorithms, but even just looking at their interfaces by trying these platforms out where you can start to see patterns repeating themselves and so on. Mm. So, you know, and what if they were all made by loads of different companies uh, from loads of different countries with loads of different politics, then, um, you know, they would have quite a different, they would have a variety of different effects on the world, I suppose, and on dating. But when they are kind of uniform and all produced with, with one kind of co co coherent almost ethos um you know and they even own some of the weird ones that you wouldn't expect like christian harmony or mm. um you know j date the jewish one you know so they, they own ones and the elite singles which is this kind of you know really posh people one um so they you know you would think these are trying to achieve different things but they're not they're all under the same roof mm. and this this is because and this this is also the pattern as you say you can see it in porn and you can see it in other areas with social media and so on which is kind of in my opinion you know a, a social media is part of the book because it's it's also about friendships you know not just relationships like dating but also how our friendships are curated and organized and you know when this when the power to organize these platforms is in the hands of uh, quite a narrow um group of people um you know with particular corporate and perhaps even political agendas then obviously they're, they're going to transform or influence uh, the world of dating to suit particular agendas rather than to suit all of us i suppose is my sure. sort of argument yeah. with those things and I guess also, I mean, they they are reliant on um, they're reliant on our clicks, aren't they? I mean, so it's this idea that I mean, on the one hand, when we, I mean, I've gone dating apps as well, and I think many of our listeners also date online. But there is this sense of that they, I guess, the on the experience of being on them is. Um, in one sense, you can kind of understand the business model as well. They're trying to get me to pay for these upgrades that mean that I will actually get these connections that I'm desiring mm. or will some, some, somehow fulfill my desire but actually their their business model is um getting you on there deriving information about you getting in valuable information about you and right i mean the the, the stuff the, the point about data and stuff is really important and then there's also a point about capitalism i suppose and, and this kind of act promise of fulfillment but mm. for, for the data thing first i mean yeah i mean the one of the funniest stories is this grinder thing mm. um that you know because um grinder was actually bought out by a gaming company um Gr grinder was one of the only that wasn't owned by iac by the way so it was, it, it was actually an independent company for, for a time and it's got a fascinating history i mean i'd recommend people read the journalist evan moffat who wrote about in in the mid 2000s uh, or, or and early 2010s that you know grinder is kind of like augmented reality before augmented reality because people were actually going on dates and staying on the phone or actually attending uh, sex events and staying on the phone at the same time almost like a pokemon go player so i think right. grinder has a peculiar relationship to augmented reality gaming um but also it was then bought by this gaming company who didn't own 
any gaming platforms. And it's, I mean, it's really funny because uh, it was this Chinese company. Obviously, China has got a very poor record with LGBTQI plus rights and so on. But then Donald Trump decided he wanted this platform back because he was so worried that uh, the intimate data, it's called intimate data, that is generated by the app would be uh, basically a massive handover of power to the Chinese. Mm. So you end up seeing this kind of international war between China and the US, you know, one, one misogynist president trying to get his gay dating app back from another kind of homophobic, um, you know, so, and, and in the end, they do force the sale of Grindr back to a US company. Mm. Um, and so I suppose it shows that, you know, money talks more than cultural values and, you know, both China and Trump's uh, regime were more than happy to throw away what they believe to be culturally important in order to get hold of this this, this, this is economically important, but but it also shows the power of intimate data, mm. and and that you know if you know if world powers are fighting over it, then it must be worth something, right? And, yeah. and this is the thing. I mean, when we when we use these apps, we reveal so much about ourselves. It's how companies like Cambridge Analytica and Palantir are structured, you know. So they they harvest this really intimate data where we share with the app how we think, feel, what, what uh, stimulates us and so on. And then this can be used and sold as data to, to achieve other kinds of particular ends. So, yeah, I mean, this, this noticing this uh, and is, the, is the sort of driving force of these apps is, is really important. Mm. Secondly, and in, in answer to your question a different way, um, yeah, of course. I mean, Hinge, for example, has that tagline. I can't quite remember it now, but it's like the dating app that's designed to be deleted or something. Mm. So, you know, they're telling you, um, you know, you um, you get this and 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 of course, it's going to be so good at matching you up with people that you won't need a dating app anymore. Now, that it's, it doesn't take a genius to, to realise that that's not clearly in Hinge's best interest for yeah. you to delete itself. So, so they're not, in fact, structured to, to um, you know, match you with some, someone so that you don't need a dating app anymore. You know, they, they, they are predicated on the fact that the more failed it is, the more you'll be back and the more you'll keep continuing. And this actually is, in a sense, how a much wider structure of corporate capitalism functions, right? Like mm. if a pair of Nike trainers or an Apple smart for Apple smartphone was truly fulfilling, you'd never buy a second one and the whole system wouldn't work. So there's, there's a broader sort of, uh, and this is, you know, something that psychoanalysis explores quite a lot. And um, especially Todd McGowan, I would say, uh, mm. who's fantastic on this in his book, Capitalism and Desire, that, you know, basically desire doesn't actually work like this at all. But we're, we, in order for capitalism to sustain itself, we have to kind of for this trick in a sense so that we keep going and, and, and buying things and you, so you can sort of see it in miniature in a dating site or in macro level in, in capitalism itself um, but you know so I suppose if, if the earlier stuff we were saying is true that these apps are really powerful and they're transforming uh, what relationships are we can then perhaps extend that now and say that they are doing so in the service of a particular kind of capitalist agenda. Yeah, very much so. That's so interesting. And actually, I was going to ask you about um, the unconscious later, but let's do it now. So uh, again, it, it, it's a psychoanalytic uh, framing that you, you bring to this as well. And you talk about Freud and our good friend Jacques Lacan. I say our good friend. <laughs> uh, listeners might have heard me really having a crash course in Lacan when I spoke to Johnny and, uh, to uh, Jacob and Bonnie about their book oh, yeah. Event Horizon, um, which was really great. And where I found out about your book, actually. Um, but um, so yeah, if... if so if we can, let, let's talk about this thing about the uh, desire or, uh, I guess, the uh, objet petit a of mm -hmm. Jacques Lacan, because I feel like this is an appropriate time to bring that up. So sure. I, I guess our, our dating apps kind of um, trying to generate this desire for our, for our 
uh, object of desire. What are they doing there? Well, I mean, I suppose this concept of object, uh, you know, it's, it's one of the sort of core Lacanian concepts or concepts from Lacan's ideas of psychoanalysis. And it's, you know, it's extremely complicated, obviously. But in a, in a nutshell, it's it's basically the idea that, you know, um, everything that you want uh, or desire in, and you can articulate uh, in, in your language as desiring. So, you know, whether it's a, a Pokemon or a, a lover or a pint of beer uh is is not like the core thing that you desire but like a kind of substitute for um this kind of elusive object of desire um uh that kind of always escapes you and, and is, is supposed to escape you right and then it's interesting this because this this runs counter in my opinion to um uh what what capitalism wants you to think and this is why i actually believe psychoanalysis is anti-capitalist as as i think jacob and bonnie do in their great mm. book as well um because um you know th- and this is often misread actually people often think uh people associate often the word lack with this idea as well because the concept mm. is that you're always lacking you're never fulfilled you're not going to get this elusive object of desire um so you're going to live your life in a constant state of unfulfillment uh chasing mm. after the object until you die without it you know so uh, but one of the misconceptions around this is that this is a um negative or um what's the word pessimistic uh situation mm. um because in um psychoanalysis or in Jacques Lacan's terms this is not bad like you you wouldn't want to get the thing that you desire right so uh if you were to have everything you wanted you would have no desire left and you would be a sort of dead subject you would be no point getting up in the morning because you wouldn't have anything to no drive nothing to go for you know so this is an extremely undesirable and, and actually the figure of the melancholic uh, in freud is also often an example of this the figure who who is missing desire right who doesn't have anything to desire and this is worse than having what you want right so so the misconception there is that is that it's a sad thing i suppose because but and now to the point about why it's anti-capitalist, because um, psychoanalysis is trying, or Lacanian psychoanalysis especially, is trying to make you realise that point, mm. right? So that you you accept a condition of being unfulfilled or lack mm. or having lack as a, a as a acceptable, inevitable, and even positive state to be mm. in, so that you therefore don't have to keep falling for this trick of pursuing everything that's offered to you as a promise of fulfillment. Mm. And so capitalism makes a promise of fulfillment, which, um, you know, psychoanalysis, I think, can, uh, and this is also from Todd McGowan's kind of argument, but, but you know, psychoanalysis can allow you to see this structure and, and therefore not necessarily keep falling for it in precisely the same ways. Sure. Um, yeah. So I guess, yeah, I guess it is this kind of uh, clarity of what it is that we're doing rather than, so on the face of it, you know, if we were to look at, uh, I'm, I'm specifically talking about dating apps. I know that you talk about lots of mm. other things in, in in the broad kind of, uh, again, city uh, that we're talking about, that you talk about in your book. But I guess what apps, uh, if we were to look at dating apps uncritically, they would say, well, they're providing me with a valuable service where, you know, they are serving up lots of people who, you know, are, you know, lots of hotties who I, you know, may <laughs> like or dislike. And, you know, it's a valuable way for me to meet people. And, and, um, and but also you make, you go to great pains in the book. And I think rightfully so to say, you know, it, it's not saying we should ditch this and kind of go back to a kind of a, a, a pre-internet model of, of, of dating are you where you know we bump into someone and you know in a pub or something no exactly and there's two reasons for that I mean one is that you know um I I don't think that 
a kind of um, well I think the technology is here to stay and that um, attempts there's nothing we can do about that so you know attempts to sort of go and live in the trees or whatever and not have the internet you know okay that might help your um, what what my opinion really I suppose it's a fairly strong opinion is that that just leaves the most exploited people without you even fighting their corner so you know if we who can afford to opt out of these technologies entirely we just leave the people who can't afford to stuck in this horrible system run by their capitalist overlords and we're no longer sort of helping them out so you know I, I don't think it's a good strategy to sort of opt out of technology and the other thing is that um and perhaps more interestingly is I haven't given up hope on I guess what I'd say is is the early um, internet cultures um, who saw the internet as a potential space for a new kind of digital commons. Mm. Um, you know, so, you know, um, in the d- digital commons in the sense that, um, you know, um, in capitalist society in general, I suppose resources is characterized by scarcity. Mm. Um, so everything runs out eventually. So we have like distribution problems and inequalities in who can have the lots and who can have little. But when the internet arrived, there was a there was lots of new philosophies of a new kind of digital commons which wouldn't have a surplus, which would have would have infinite infinite no um, no scarcity because mm. you know unlike a commons where you'd have a shared well for water in a village and each time you take a bucket out there's a bucket less in there the digital object is kind of potentially infinite so you could you know there was conceptualization of the internet as this kind of really i mean it goes with other things you know but it was there was hope that the internet would be a kind of revolutionary democratic space for new kinds of social organization that it could break away from the inequalities uh, and and scarcities that you find elsewhere i suppose in in society Mm. Um, incidentally you know i think nfts are an introduction to kind of reintroduce scarcity into the digital commons because right. the basically is, is the, the nft is infinite but it's it's being um turned into a scarce commodity mm. um by by those who want to get rid of this possibility of the infinite digital commons anyway i suppose all of that's a long-winded way of saying that mm. i still have hope that the internet and digital media can be part of a better kind of communal future. Mm-hmm. So I want what I wanted to do, and, and it's kind of done in the book in a sort of half joking way, but at the end of each chapter, I did like a kind of proposal for a, a digital object that would work for, for the left or for socialism or for the common good or whatever. So, you know, one of those was a dating site. One was a, a kind of um, kind of sort of somewhere between a video game and porn um, program. And one was a, a kind of wearable, like equivalent of a Fitbit. Yeah. And, you know, these are kind of silly suggestions uh, in the sense that I don't think that my idea is really that good and that some tech startup should start making these <laughs> silly suggestions that I've come up with in the book. But the point is to, to say, look, instead of opting out, uh, and this is what your question was, instead of opting out, you know, we can we can opt in and try and come up with some strategies. And if we had a better common ownership of resources and materials and got our heads together and thought about, okay, how do we make a dating app which doesn't just serve this particular set of corporate interests but works for everyone in a communal way? You know, that would, I think, be a route to a better kind of future. Yeah, and and just from your story about Grindr at the beginning of the booking, at the beginning of our conversation, it's clear that these these are not small stakes like the, Donald Trump has not was not in the in the kind of the realm of the uh, yeah. not doing a sim, symbolistic thing I'm not to use the Lacanian I'm not using Lacanian kind of symbolism no, yeah. Yeah, but to, he's not doing a symbolistic thing of you know I want grinder back kind of thing is because and as you explain in the book you know the reason why China wants it uh, or the reason why China is interested in in um, in 
in having these apps within that within their purview is literally uh, it keeps people clicking and making money within China. You know, it is creating you know money for the creating profit for for Chinese companies. Um, uh, but I guess it is it is to it is to see clearly who is owning these companies and what it is that we're doing when we're taking part in these. Um, yeah. Yeah, and these gamified things. Yeah, and and I suppose the things that to say here, and it's not again, it's not a point that that um, is is unique to me. Um, but you know, uh, these companies are increasingly in bed with these nation states, and this yeah. is the new kind of these battles over who owns the cloud. I mean, you saw it again with the T-Mobile five G thing and the Huawei battle. You know, um, uh, these these are the new form of um, you know global um, stakeholders going to war over. Um, digital space because this is the resource that is of the highest value and it's of the highest value not just in terms of generating profit but also in in, in and this sounds more dystopian I suppose but in carving out what the future of um, the, the, the the human population is going to act like and behave like and you know this is why I also wanted to talk about smart cities I know that smart cities sounds like a long way from dating apps but actually they're part of they're all technologies which are interested in how can we edit and change the behavior of a population population to to suit us and and you can see clear examples you know jack ma the um founder of alibaba he's a member of the chinese communist party that just came out a few years ago eric schmidt the ceo of google now sits on the former ceo he now sits on this pentagon panel for integrating uh, digital technologies into the nsa you know that's the subject of julian assange's book which hardly anyone's bizarrely read called when google met wikileaks it's absolutely great at sort of showing how you know before before we all realized it in fact that this was already happening and mm-hmm. and basically you know so so it's not separate this corporate power is not separate from state power and it's 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 a new form of 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 power which is yes interested in deriving the most profit at any at the expense of anything else but it's also got other kinds of power that it can be part of changing election results and you know rigging democracy and and changing behavior patterns and really sort of transforming what it means to be a citizen today right let's talk about that because i guess before i read your book i might have assumed that the kinds of uh let's say you know like the neoliberal ways that would that we might do sex and relationships which depend on this kind of idea of um idea of scarcity there being like the one being yeah, out right. there and um and that you know hard-working families or stronger families depending on whether you're a tory or keir starmer um are somehow <laughs> kind of part of like i guess like almost a hegemonic project or like a kind of a big other type thing but actually you're drawing these much more like causal kind of um links between those and actually that that the way that we meet now, the way that our desires are kind of funneled and channeled, actually are to fit the needs of capital that for us as workers, uh, and they fit the needs of capital. You kind of draw those links quite early on in the book, don't you? Yeah, I suppose so, yeah. And, I, you know, I think, yeah, I mean, I suppose um, one thing here would be to connect dating sites with targeted advertising. That might be one way of answering this, because on the one hand, you've got, you know, and we see this, and, and I've, I've, I also think this is... Um, interesting for other reasons sort of um uh, what would be the word sort of culturally interesting i mean i looked at some really weird sites one of the things i had to go on was trump.dating mm. this donald trump support site um, there's also the atlasophere this Anne rand dating site there's red yenta a, a sort of um experimental semi-serious um socialist dating site that, but this is not actually that there and there are some joke ones as well and it's sometimes very difficult to tell which ones are real <laughs> and uh, there's a farmer's one which is real funny but um <laughs> but um but the point is that there, there's a 
logic to this. It's no different, actually. You know, Hinge is obviously different to Tinder, and uh, in a sense, and and so is, you know, Guardian Soulmates, which closed down this year. This was a classic kind of liberals one in the yeah. UK. R.I.P. Yeah, let's pull one. Let's pull one out for Guardian Soulmates. So dating app, I'm proud to say I've never been on. So. No, I haven't either, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but um, what am I, where am I going with this? Well, I mean, I, I'm. Ta- I, I think one of the things I wanted to get to in the book was how the internet is not um this shared commons mm. but these 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 pockets of um these bubbles you know and, and there are various things i mean in media studies in digital internet studies there's concepts of the splinter net sometimes mm. called the cyber balkanization you know like much in the same way as yugoslavia was kind of partitioned off into these states uh we can this is this is used as an image to think about how the internet actually functions so we we think we're all in one pool together but we're actually in loads of different pools and it's almost impossible to cross over from one to the other Hmm. um you can certainly see that's the logic with something like trump.dating compared to guardian soulmates right and it's actually systemic to the thought process i mean for example the idea of a match if you think about match.com or tinder does say that doesn't it? it's a match that's the concept and the company's called match group you know Hmm. so but this idea of matching is it's like a mirroring you know it's it's the person for you is the most similar to you and that's what that's that's itself got loads of issues in it but Hmm. what it what it ends up achieving is this kind of bubbles filter bubbles i suppose these these sort of pockets of the internet with different so-called types of people in each one and Hmm. you know this is it might sound like a stretch but this is why everyone who was um anti-brexit had no was shocked that it happened right because you weren't seeing all the people who were pro-brexit you know it's as simple as that you know you, yeah. you're, you're living in you know so it's, it's, it happens really in, in the dating world and it means that relationships are more likely to happen between the, in these groups of people the most spooky example of this is a Chinese app called Baihei, um, which uh, runs it on the Zima credit score which is basically based on an American credit score so it's, it's not um it's not one of these things where it's easy to say, well, this is how crazy China is, you know, uh, this is, uh, but it's, it's kind of an extreme version. And it basically, it, it uh, rewards you for certain things, mostly having good credit rating, but also things like um, if your friends have been, uh, I can't remember what the categories, I think it's called connections, but it's like, if your friends have been arrested, you lose points, you know, right. so it's really part of this kind of social credit system mm-hmm. where, you know, if you're a good citizen, you get points and then you get access to the higher quality dates. It bubbles people up according to their <sighs> score. So you're putting sort of your delinquents who have got loads of radical friends and go on protests all in a pool together. And then you sort of rich people who are good citizens in another pool <laughs> and and this is the logic of these platforms and i suppose um that that is scary for so many different reasons because it it, it feeds inequality political divisiveness it shuts down com- conversations and opportunities to engage with people who don't think similarly to you but also it is also because this is how the marketing structures of targeted advertising works mm-hmm. so if we can have everyone who likes cappuccinos right doing on the, in this place and everyone who likes mcdonald's big mac or whatever in this place and the vegans over here then you know it makes sense for the way in which those people can be targeted um with um uh with advertising campaigns not just to market products but also to do i suppose what's called nudging right so like working mm-hmm. out what people want and then influencing what they want in various ways so so yeah this whole system is having all sorts of negative effects and it's such a shame 
uh, that this it's the opposite, absolute opposite of this idea, this kind of utopian idea of a digital commons where we would all have this shared space and we would actually be able to meet people who weren't just from our village and things like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I I'd quite like to like end our conversation with uh, with your proposal for this actually, and from your chapter <laughs> from metamor metaphor to metonymy, which is the first time I said that word, so I've almost. 100% mispronounced it. Um, That's actually right. But, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> so, yeah, so so your point here is that, you know, so what the internet could have done was to be, as as you say, matching people up from, from wherever, but all it's doing is kind of like taking us back to, I guess, what has become a common sense idea that you would meet people in your social or geographical or um, demographic kind of like class or category. And so... I guess before the before internet dating, we might assume to be to meet people in our you know geographic location at our work um, or in social events that we go to. So we have a very um, uh, narrow feel from who we're choosing. The opportunity for uh, dating apps would be okay. Here's absolutely anybody. Here is you know hotties from all over. You know with a reasonable <laughs> travelling distance. If you want your relationship to be IRL, but actually it's just selling us back this idea that or or putting us back in these categories in ways which they now control rather than mm. rather than wasn't in control before. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I suppose what I wanted to do um, is um, not just have it random. So I don't think it would be that. Um, uh, Clearly, they there are ways in which um, algorithms can and data can um, help to because the thing that you will if if you just say let's all just throw everyone together in a random thing you know the thing that what people will say and I don't actually know if it's true it, it might take longer even more scrolling and, and flicking but you know people would will immediately say and perhaps rightly that this just won't work as well right, right. um so the data can be useful in helping you and and there's plenty of there are so many what do we what do you call that when it works like the opposite of a sob story like a good story where these yeah, things work, right? yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right yeah. uh so um so so clearly there's got to be some way in which the data um you know uh can be used to help us meet people that we could get on with yeah but yeah. on the other hand we don't want a situation where you're only meeting a certain type of people so how could we like conceive of a dating app which somehow uh, had the best of both worlds here and you know it's a huge project really because i think ultimately you'll never see this sort of thing happen unless you actually seize the means of production of these things and you know so unless we had a proper communal shared ownership of platforms like this we would it would be almost it's just completely unreasonable to ask them to behave in a way that we might like. But just for the sake of imagination, if we did have a, a millions of billions of pounds and a, a network of people dedicated to, um, you know, creating a dating app that was doing something better. Yeah, I, 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 I thought that the best way to do it would be to, um, uh, I mean, I, I, I don't usually go around using words like metonymy myself, to be honest. But, <laughs> but well, but, I am um, now. I'm going to try and get into it. You know, try and bring it up in a conversation like that. But but it, it's the idea basically that you know metaphor is the idea of like the dating app. We've covered that. I think that it's a copy of you. You know, somebody who matches you, who has similar characteristics to you. You know, metonymy is more like um, in in this particular kind of theory uh, from Roland Barthes. Really, it's more like the the next thing in the chain. So like one thing leads to another, leads to another, leads to another, and those things are in close proximity with other. They're almost like touching, um, and and the fact that they're touching indicates a similarity, right? And what you actually see this 
these with like word wheels and stuff like that online. You know, something like Wikipedia. Hmm. Uh, this is the simplest way I can put it. You know how you go on Wikipedia and you end up somewhere quite far away mm-hmm. from where you intended to be, right? But it's not random because you followed your own interests to get there, right? So you started on an article about Johnny Depp's uh, trial or whatever. You ended up reading about, you know, analytic philosophy mm-hmm. in the 18th century, <laughs> you know. But but these things are far away from each other. But there is a, a link of, of, of change that you chose to go through, uh, which made you end up at the place where you ended up. So it's quite wild, Wikipedia, and I think it's a great example. And it's no coincidence that Wikipedia was not made as a, a, a for-profit corporation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I suppose you could think of Reddit as having a similar structure when compared to, whereas on Facebook and Twitter, you nev- it's actually nearly impossible to like get out of your uh, curated space. Yeah. Right? You'd have to actually use the search bar and just like search a random person or something. Uh, in order to like find something unusual so and then how do you decide what to search so you're really so dating apps today they work much more like Facebook and Twitter than they do like Wikipedia and Reddit Mm. and so my idea was that you would restructure it so that the data is there maybe using words or something um, or whatever it would be and so that it was being used to inform it but but that you could sort of follow a path and end up somewhere wildly different to where you um started so everyone would have a profile page and everything on it would be a clickable link Mm -hmm. Uh, and so you would you'd be like okay well I like that person but uh, you know the I'm not quite sure they're right for me but I can see that they're interested in whatever it is I'm going to click on that one and then you see someone else who's got that word in there and you know so you sort of explore it as this kind of much more digital traveler sort of way and and end up much further from where you you began uh, right. So you're not you end up choosing to date someone based on someone you've sort of found in this curated mass rather than someone that's been chosen for you as a match because they're similar to you. Yeah, I think that um, I mean, I like, I'm attracted to this idea. <laughs> and that sounds that sound very nerdy because it sounds very <laughs> rhizomic. Right. It yeah. Is, right. And so um, rather than it just kind of serving uh, serving up. Uh, you do talk about Deleuze and Guattari and um, the uh, individuated stuff mm. the, the, uh, that there are, it's almost like we are, ourselves are kind of like apportioned off in this world. And then, um, and, and we find like bits of other people, I suppose, but this is like the possibility of what else might our dating apps look like, uh, what else might our dating cells look like, I suppose. Um and I think OkCupid originally, well, people tell me who people who were on OkCupid before I joined said it did used to feel much more of a community back in the old days. Maybe, I don't know. Yeah. What well, it's interesting. Um, I don't know too much about the history, but what I do know is that there's, there's little, there's kind of like, I wouldn't go as far as hacker communities, but there's tricks you can use. So, right. for instance, I was in a totally different rabbit hole the other day looking at uh, Harry Potter fan fiction, mm. uh, especially queer and trans Harry Potter fan fiction. And I was reading <laughs> one of these things and th- one particular of the most popular sto- Harry Potter fan fiction stories on the, on the cover. When you get to the book on online, they got things like OkCupid okay cheat words or whatever. Mm. So if you use this word in your bio on OkCupid, okay you'll act, you'll match up with people people um who have also used that word so this i find really interesting it's almost like how can other kinds of communities more progressive than okcupid itself hack the system or influence the algorithm in such a way as to turn it to their advantage or something yeah 
That kind of leads me on to another. I don't know. I don't. I don't know whether this is kind of like a off topic or not. But I, it's from your book. This idea of rhythm rhythm analysis. Again, I've not said that out loud before. Mm. Um, so on on Lefebvre, which is which is to look at how. Okay, so to take back um, uh, data and platform industries, gaming industries, social media industries, or the social industry, as Richard Seymour calls it, sounds you know sounds like we need a revolution to do that. But there might be uh, day you know everyday kind of mundane, quiet revolutionary things that we could also be paying atten- paying attention to. And that's what I found really interesting from when he brought in ryth- rhythm analysis. And I guess that. Is, is this hacking that you're talking about here like a kind of an example of that, of, of ways that we can kind of be disrupting this as individuals? Mm. Yeah, I mean, so this is an interesting question. I mean, I, yeah, I guess I wanted to, yeah, um, uh, think about this. Um, this is a concept of, of rhythm analysis from, yeah, as you say, Henri Lefebvre, but it's it's also um, Debord and the Situationist, so mm. it's part of a sort of Marxist history of cities and so on. Um, so... Um, uh, um, you know, it's it was the idea that basically architecture um, in Debord's time really influenced the way people move around their city. So, mm-hmm. like behavior patterns, you know, and and you know, they they would explore this by thinking, well, certain streets really encourage you to go up them, and certain don't, and and looking at what it meant to use the city and how people become. And and you know, when I was in one of the most interesting things that um, I did as research was go to this place in East China in Hangzhou, which is Alibaba's cloud town. Uh, and this is um, their own Silicon Valley, basically, where Alibaba, who are at the forefront of kind of smart city production in, in China. Uh, and they showed me all these technologies, this crazy stuff about like traffic lights that read your facial lines to know how old you are and how long you're going to need to cross the road to cars that know when you're hungry and what you're going to want for lunch and all this stuff. Yeah. And, and they um, but really, it's, it's the these digital technologies. They set the new rhythms of the, of the city and of the space and mm. and they set the new psychodrama as the board would call it the the kind of geography of the city that's in your mind rather than uh you know physical geography and and the way in which you move around and use your city so um you know wearables fitbits gps systems uber deliveroo you know these gig economy type apps are all interested in this particular routes google maps you know pokemon go putting pokemon in certain places (laughs) there's endless you know running apps uh things like that you know there's endless examples of how the city has become this kind of programmable space where you're sort of rhythms are are part of um, of that and then of course we get that in the purely online world as well um, with you know uh, something like Netflix, uh, something like you know all those kind of streaming platforms, which try to kind of reintroduce rhythm to everyday life by curating programs and placing them in front of you and so on. Mm-hmm. So, and I think maybe this is the because um, your question was, can this be kind of radical? Uh, and I suppose on the one hand, it's it's radical because it reveals to you the patterns that the that corporate city wants you to be uh, adhering to. But I think it can do even more than that. Like, mm-hmm. and I think this and this maybe sounds. Um, a bit uh, naively nostalgic but when I was growing up um, I used to remember things like uh, eating dinner at 6.30 because The Simpsons was on at 6 yeah. um, and I also there's that classic story about 
um, how British streets um, used to have a power cut at 745 halfway through Coronation Street because everyone was putting the kettle on at the same time. And it was, you know, you'd have a localised power cut. See, I remember this happening, you know, a couple of streets, lights would go out for two hours because, you know, too many cups of tea. You know, now, in a way, this is a depressing picture of how predictable and mundane British life was. In the, but <laughs> on the other hand, what happens when the digital, uh, and it is, in fact, probably the digital switchover, if you remember all this panic on TV uh, about the digital switchover and so on, but that's the start. Uh, I think that's 2000 or something. But as the internet becomes, you know, a, an everyday part of everyone's lives, as streaming platforms take over from, um, you know, fixed times, you know, you 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 move from a, a, a sort of nation where everyone was doing the same thing at the same time to the point where you have a power cut to a situation where everyone has got their own personally curated experience, which is particularly, and this is something some people might disagree with. In my opinion, it's deliberately designed to separate you off from other people. Right. You know, you are not supposed to be on the same rhythmic pattern as anyone else, because if you were, you would have the shared grounds for revolt. You know, I think right. it it makes sense for power holders to divide, to use these strategies to divide people, to, to make sure we're all running at different rhythms, mm. because if you're running at the same rhythm, you, you know, and it's not, you know, it's not, it's, that's not wild. I mean, some bosses at work give people lunch breaks at different times for precisely this reason. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a strategy that's been in place in workplaces. And, and now we're all working in this kind of massive factory where we're all on different rhythms that we thank the tech lords for because we think that it's really giving us what we want and consumer choice and how wonderful it is that we've got more options. But actually, we've lost the shared sense of rhythm with other people that. Right. And that might That's feed back into dating and relationships. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I guess one thing we might do is is just to notice how we can individually quietly disrupt this. So, you know, mm. to kind of, I guess, uh, if we're being gamified by relationships, then are the, are the by relationship dating apps, are there way for, ways for us to kind of gamify this? I'm just thinking on, for example, maybe if everybody just matched with each other everywhere all of the time and then use that for a for having conversations about the app uh, have, have uh, referring people to podcasts like this uh, and books like yours you know that might be a place with uh, you know what Jeremy mm. Gilbert calls potent collectivities you know where bringing people back together where they actually are in the same space and talking about yeah. some of these things yeah no I agree no no and that's all that's that should be the focus I mean that's the capacity to use the internet to do those things is huge. So, yeah. you know, that should be the the focus and the dominant trend. Yeah. Um, but as I say, it's a, I suppose that part, we do have some influence over, right? Because we still yeah. have the ability to choose to, to do those things, you know? So I think that's good. Yeah. There's just one other thing that I kind of want to talk about just because I found it really interesting. It's kind of relevant to the podcast and something which has come up a lot on the podcast, which is when you're talking about, um, uh, was it Roland Bart? 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 Bart. Yeah, Bart. Bart. That'll do. Yeah. Um, and the, his idea of like enamoration. So, you know, something that me and formerly uh, Meg John Barker used to be uh, do the show with me, something that we would always be very critical of or invite the listeners to be critical of or invite everyone to be critical of is this idea of falling in love and, and what that is, you know. Mm-hmm. And actually, I would, you know, I started calling it um, uh, a micro moment of positivity resonance where certain things happen in your brain but that's it. Um, uh, but, you know, we have this very strong story and, and this scene 
uh, where falling in love kind of happens. And what you say, what you draw on in the book from from Bart is that what he says is that we first of all fall in love with a scene mm-hmm. uh, and and the and the kinds of and the things in it. Can you talk a little bit about this? Because I found this super. Yeah, yeah. No, this is this was also one of my um, sort of main motivations really for starting work on this book. That's kind of why it's at the beginning, I suppose, because you know it was when I saw this, uh, you know, when I read this. Um, uh, Roland Barthes theory I thought mm, yeah this is actually more uh, this really made sense of the digital world to me mm. um, so basically he's obviously he's writing in this book called A Lover's Discourse and, and you know he's a kind of almost out of fashion French philosopher really from mm. the same era as Lacan, Derrida, Deleuze um, and uh, but this this book is not one of the more well-known ones and um, yeah he's got he has this theory of desire there which I didn't really expect to see um, and it seems much more like psychoanalytic than than I'd have thought but like basically he says that when you when you like it's it's about as you say the phrase falling in love he also uses the word enamoration Mm. meaning like the moment where I become enamored by something and he also uses the word ravishment you know when you become sort of enravished or whatever Mm. it is so what he's talking about I suppose rather than love is this sort of moment where desire really starts and takes hold Mm. Um, and what he says is that it's got less to do with the object and more to do with the scene. So when you, when we, and this is the opposite of how we talk about desire, mm-hmm. right? We just talk about desire in terms of the object. And we do that when we're talking about, oh, I'm seeing this guy or this girl, you know, he, she is so great uh, because X, Y, Z, or oh, I just love madmen or Nike trainers you know wh- whatever we're doing we talk about it so much in this subject and object thing mm. right? um, whereas you know what Barthes is saying is actually what's more important in making desire possible is the scene where it appears um, and um, so you know he, he gives some examples and he's using a scene in the sort of sense of a, um, a theatre production Right. So, you know, when like Romeo sees Juliet, right, it's less about her. uh, And, you know, actually, it's shown in that Baz Luhrmann film where they see each other through the fish tank and so on. The whole thing structures it, this party that he shouldn't be at, this impossible love that happens between Romeo and Juliet or whatever. The fact that they see each other, um, you know, in this way. And it's it's much it's extremely heavily influenced by what's around it than the arrangement of objects around it, not just this connection between two two people or two things. So, um, you know, my idea was to sort of apply that theory to the digital and, you know, it was fun to just call it a screen of enamoration instead of a scene of enamoration. But basically that this is really how desire is mediated through the screen of our smartphones today. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the interfaces of Tinder or Grindr or but also other things, you know, Deliveroo, I think would be an interesting example of this, you know, scrolling through those pictures of food until one pops out at you and whatever. There is actually a bizarre um, dating food site called Mangia, which is like Tinder for food. You sort of swipe until you know what you want to have. <laughs> and so on. So, you know, <laughs> everyone's kind of doing doing this now. But so one way to hack OkCupid, okay, I found out about recently, is to mention mm. the food writer, Jonathan Nunn. And then basically then, so then you'll know that you'll go on a date with someone who knows where to eat in London so that's, <laughs> that's one way of hacking it but sorry yeah. I interrupted no, no, you no, 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 you're absolutely right yeah. that's interesting no but so, so I suppose I'm saying that you know that, that's the point that, that you know it's it's much less we've uh, it's obvious you know we don't have um, brilliant connection with somebody through our phone 
the phone is more important than yeah. the thing, you know, and it really is the new thing which mediates desire. And, and you know, I, I really recommend a book um, for people who just want to read a, a, a not a theory book, but um, which I've talked about in the book called um, The Disconnect by Rasheen Kibbard. And uh, she's a, a, a Irish writer in, in her 20s. Uh, and she talks about, you know, falling in love over Gmail. Right. And it's extremely interesting. You know, I mean, Gmail is even kind of retro these days, <laughs> but like, you know, it's, it's the way in which like the, 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 the sort of platforms themselves, you know, and even this is not just, I just want to say this is not just for people whose relationship is entirely online. Hmm. Just think if, I don't know. I mean, I, I've had partners where the WhatsApp is basically the, the, the meat of the relationship, basically, right. you know, or the, or, or the Facebook chat or whatever. And a, a lot of it happens there. So even if we have in real life, probably some marriages that are 15 years old have switched over to this kind of mediated desire. So, so it's, it's not just for online relationships. This is, right. it's become part of desire that, that it, it is mediated through these screens. And we see it with dating apps, we see it with chat programs, we see it with emojis and all sorts. And, and this is not, I'm not saying this is bad, not at all, but it's just noticing how, and this is what Roland Barthes' theory is, it's, it's not bad. It's not saying this ruins it or anything, not, not yeah. at all. It's just saying that, you know, we, we mistakenly think of it as something that only involves us, right? right? But relationships actually take place in a scene, in a, in a, in a wider sort of um, arrangement of objects. Right. And if we're to understand relationships, we also need to understand that those scenes and those digital scenes that are mediating and, and presenting those relationships to us, I suppose. Right, and that that and that there so and that there is this intentionality to relationships that 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 we need to have. Um, and that actually, you know, this uh, the scene that we are given, I guess, gives us this sense of, you know, might give us a sense of this is meant to be or, or this is. Um, I'm just reminded of uh, a bit in Seinfeld where where George <laughs> Costanza is saying, um, you know, every, everybody else has really great meeting stories. I've never had that great meeting story. You know, they're just that kind of and it becomes. And so that story becomes like an indicator of how successful the relationship might be, because it's as if. A magical thing happened, but these scenes are set in place, and these scenes are are, are not making us do this, but they have an influence on how we on, on on our desires. And you also kind of talk about this um, that that this might lead to some possibility of there being a more a less spontaneous way of doing relationships, and that that actually might also be um, oh yeah a, fe- a feminist uh, thing too. I'm glad you asked about that. No, nobody ever asked about that. Um, yeah, um, no, this was one of the most, and I think I should just be, you know, uh, this was one, of, I mean, so, I mean, I was very interested in feminist theory during my degree and stuff, especially psychoanalysis and film, you know, which is part of my sort of um, background, um, you know, but but I hadn't thought about so much from this angle, um, but it was actually the really interesting, The, re- I, the I, I think it came mostly from the series editors uh, of this book when I first sent it off. They sort of um, recommended me this kind of history, a particular history of feminist theories of desire. Um, and, um, you know, uh, lots of it is really interesting and important, especially Ava Illouz, uh, her book's really important on this stuff um but it was actually this um kind of radical feminist from the 70s um Shulmay Firestone um who's um you know I found super interesting on this topic of spontaneity and this immediately like I thought yeah there's something really important here because 
Um, you know, spontaneity. This is the whole question. We started talking about this data. You know, clearly we don't want it random, um, but you know, we also don't want it just curated um, in 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 the service of these particular strand of corporate tech bros in Silicon Valley or whatever. Right. So, what do we do? And I found that really interesting. That she was she she, she talks about how um, in in her own context, men can afford to be spontaneous in a way women can't, and so on. And spontaneity uh, is on the side of privilege, whereas you know which I, I could totally understand those arguments and think it was really, really interesting to do that. Mm -hmm. So I suppose, um, you know, that all then plugs into this kind of discussion of like, well, how do we sort of, um, you know, it's actually not good enough to sort of, like I said, like we said about when you asked about um, what about running away from the internet? You know, mm. there's a certain kind of privilege here. You know, what about yeah. like people who in the Philippines who depend on uh, the Amazon Mechanical Turk for their livelihood and their family's livelihood? What if you go and live in a forest in uh, upstate New York or whatever, you, you know, you're just leaving those people there. And I think this is the thing. We have to think about this from a, a global politics perspective, a feminist perspective, you know, all kinds of things like that, because this is a place um where we all, the internet, it, well, it's not, but it's close, closely getting towards a place where we're all, we're all going to be there in the future, but we're not all going to be there in the same way. There's going to be sort of vast inequalities um, in regards to the way and the kinds of um, beneficiaries and the kinds of experiences that different groups of people have on, mm. on the internet. So, you know, I, I haven't been able to solve this, obviously, <laughs> but, no, but thinking about this is important. <laughs> no, definitely. And also, of course, you know, the, the enamoration is just the first bit, you know, the actual relationship is something that we can build well, in as post-capitalist way as possible, you know, and that's exactly, the, yeah. exactly. And, 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 you know, that's the point. I mean, in a way though, you, you, you you've made a point I should have made that actually all that all those apps care about is the enamoration yeah because um that's the end you know yeah that's it I would actually like to see an app yeah and I don't know it's interesting that yeah yeah it's interesting it's all about that first bit it's not like because in a way I mean my experience I don't know if this is just personal but my experience is it's not it's not that difficult to like uh, experience that enamoration and, and find someone to go on a date with. But the, the first few weeks of a relationship are probably the most difficult to like work out whether it was. So well, they should make an app that's for like the sort of medium term. Instead yeah, of just how meeting. They... <laughs> well, that's where people like me come in. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, <I suppose> so. <laughs> but monetizing that is the hardest bit. <laughs> yeah, right. right. <laughs> well, Alfie, what an interesting uh, conversation and such an interesting book. Please doing uh, i am encouraging everyone just to buy this book and, and crucially to read it it's very accessible there's so there's many many ideas in it but it's actually pretty easy reading even though there's so much theory in it um uh, dream lovers the gamification of relationships out now alfie bound thank you so much for coming on the show thanks so much for having me it's been really fun to talk and thanks everyone for listening cool